Hi, welcome to Smileys. So we are still doing Fall of Light, Chapter 8 today. And once again, it's Lee's turn to summarize the chapter. So strap in for about two hours, give or take. So hi, Lee. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Hello, I'm pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm waiting to see. This was a good chapter, so yeah, I'm looking forward to see. Uh, it's one of those chapters in Fall of Light where nothing really happens, but so much happens. It's just... Yeah. We're going to get to it, you'll see. It's one of those chapters. So, uh, it's, it's without any further ado, yeah. it's a very good chapter. Oh, you're starting uh, off. Yeah. Go on, go on. Um, I think the 1600 words that I have to recite are probably enough to give people the idea of what kind of chapter this is. So, I'm not going to bore you too much with the preamble. So, scene mm-hmm. one, of which yeah. uh, is titled Enough with the Horse Thoughts, all right? Yeah, because good. That good. happens. <laughs> uh, so, Riding through the forest to their post as newfound officers of the Hus Legion, Pranzak and Dathnar are, as always, engaged in conversation. And of course, the bridge finds itself back into the conversation. Their education and knowledge brought them to this, and why? Well, because they abandoned their posts for the bridge, they guarded held more worth than they attributed to it. They should have stood back to back and thus face all manner of dire threat from the treacherous wind to the unleavened night. They could even face their own wretched imaginations and venal commanders. In other words, it's the consequences of their actions coming to bite them in the ass. But also, they are mocking the post again, as if they haven't done so already. Yeah. Dathanar pretty much picks up on what Prasak is laying down. The latter is not particularly fond of Silga's ruin. Indeed, Prasak has seen white crows. Now you stare at the camera and laugh. <laughs> With softer regard. Why? <laughs> and likens the two men. Because, you know, Solgas's title is the White Crow in Lethary mythology. So it's like, I have seen White Crows yeah. with softer regard. And it's like, ha, ah, get it? Because yeah. this is one of the more obvious ones. There's a lot of these there. Um, yeah. He likens the two men to carrion on a battlefield. A feast for crows, if you will. Dathanar is impressed with the metaphor, and he contends that on a battlefield, black and white dominates in all, a misanthropic place ill-suited to civil debate, because priorities. Once upon a time, says Prazak, we were gentle. They came from somewhere, doesn't matter where, and found themselves in a virgin land with majestic streams and trees and rich ores. Even then, Dathanar replies, there were crows of black and crows of white to keep things simple. Prasak agrees. It was simple enough for the forges, for the endless devouring and subsequent befouling of nature. Why, they must have been avatars of dark at the time as well, though they knew it not. Regardless, they can look back upon those gentle times and take note of all the gentle murder. Yeah, yeah. Destruction thrives in indifference. <laughs> the Tyst may have been asleep, calmly and calmly disposed, while all around them nature was systematically murdered. Civilization was ever simple in its demands. It's only now, in Corel Galen's advanced age, that they are making a complex mess out of the simple needs of a flourishing civilization, because they're no longer flourishing. And so, Prazek longs for the rural to keep things simple. The white crows on one side, black upon the other. Foes clearly delineated from comrades, every field a battlefield. Simple. The rural finds him, alas, but not in the manner he wished. He's an old man with his aches. Now he does pull out a piece of gristle between his molars, and lo and behold, the conversation shifts from civilization in the bridge to more pertinent matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his complaints are akin to those of peasants, and Prezak agrees. 
peasantry defines itself in miserable self-regard, and surely he's achieved that. He finds himself a purveyor, I pronounced the wrong word, of unheralding skies, not unlike the peasant he's purported to be. Uh, Were his feet on the ground, he would shuffle one or two to nudge along his slow thoughts. Dathana concurs that as well he does so, if only to lay claim to the ground he stands on. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't understand exactly what this metaphor about like shuffling feet and whatnot is about. I, I, do you have anything? I don't think there's much there. I mean, it does come back when they talk yeah. about the the runaways whom they round up and they all shuffle mm-hmm. back to camp. So, I don't know. Right. Is it anything deeper? I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean... Given into these two, probably. I'm just not smart enough to understand. Mm, I think yeah. it's something to do with, like, you know, more peasantry acts rather than, like, strutting or, you know, peacocking. They're just shuffling along or scurrying along. I don't know. Maybe maybe something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the opposite of what these guys are doing, right? They're, they're riding. Yeah. So, distinctly unpleasant, like. <laughs> the peasant, then, Prasak claims, knows the stony soil beneath him and is not as uncomprehending as one thinks. He observes the passing of armies in column, and the smoke above the trees, and the flotsam in the streams. Alas, more pressing concerns are about the wind, the weather, the firewood, his wife who is pacing ruts in the cabin floor. Dathana contends she might be sharpening stakes or tending a babe, but Prasak replies that in tending said babe, she would notice that the bars of the crib mirror the greater barge around her own cage. Jesus. I know. Okay, I came up a bit of nowhere, but sure, yeah, why not? But at least her husband's an honest, hard-working man. His hands and fingers are blunted from years of labor, he limps and he squints, but at the very least he's an honest man, not prone to abuses. Alas, Braza contends, come the summer, a company of soldiers, recruits, nay, brass gangs, the poor fool, they shove a spear <laughs> into his hands and they have him wave flags, be they white or black. Perhaps they even take his wife if no baby's present. And thus, they march to war, reduced to simple thoughts pertaining to aches, the weather, and the seasons. At least until battle's time, when every notion of civility is done away with. Yeah. But wait, Dathana says. What are the heroes? What are the stirring speeches? Where's the glory in all of this? When those farmers <laughs> stand in a ragged row, feet shuffling, with a limp and a squint and a tick, tilting heads to listen to the winged bag riding back and forth on a confused horse before Dathana gleefully mimics the horse for our sake. But we have to get to pertinent matters. The king's speech... Wait, what king? No, As Amendus. This individual, who is a he, mind you, very important, is a king in his own mind. If it was a she, she could be a queen in her own mind. This is not a she, this is a he. A crowded skull indeed, with monuments raised capable of beggaring any beggar, which is a delightful quote. Um, (laughs) See him march up and down as a sign of self-importance, wearing different guises befits the moment. Is it any wonder he casts coy glances at mirrors as if whispering of adoration and worship? About time we got out of his skull and actually got to the speech, yes? Indeed, Raza concurs, since the two of them are so busy, so caught up in noble notions and thereby unaware of peasants by the wayside, because they've not seen any Daphne replies, but Raza counts that they must surely exist in principle, and the former invites the skull to war. Razak begs a moment to compose himself, Daphne says that he sees a week at least. God, this, this dialogue's amazing, I'm going to quote it at the thick of this read, but yeah. And Razak on, begins what is probably the single most sarcastic speech I have ever seen. Now, Summarizing such a speech would be immensely difficult. Um, suffice it to say, 
Frasak and Adana are each embodying the roles of chorus to excellence, and thereby each fulfills the role of king, who is Frasak, and or peasant, who is Dana in this example. Uh, the peasants, a wretched minions, instrument of Prasak will, are gathered here on the eve of battle at dawn, very important, because re- the, the, no, 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 just dark, read the yeah. entire speech again, it's amazing. And the battle is theirs, while the glory will belong to Prasak. Indeed, the situation is of utmost simplicity. They are here, while the others they must fight are over there, and he trusts there shall be no confusion in this matter. I just bumped my mic, I'm sorry. No, no issues. And the only reason uh, so, they're fighting is because they're here and they're not there. Yeah. Dathana claims that he has a brother in those fighting over there, but Prasak <laughs> replies that he is no brother of his, and moreover, that his mother is a harlot and a liar. Should they win, he will be most pleased, but if they fail, it will be most displeasing, as it incurs the high likelihood of having his skull cracked open, spilling forth minarets and towers and the like, which will be most <laughs> unbecoming. Was that succinct yeah. enough then? Um, Shall we march to war? <laughs> yeah, just just read the entire speech yourself. Like nothing I can say about it makes it any better than it is. It's it's delightful. The if, two men. If you had to meme that, yeah, yeah. if you had yeah. to meme this speech, it would be the one from Shrek. That is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Yeah, it's it's exactly that speech. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same energy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so the two men are mentally exhausted and elect to speak of prisoners. Prasak begs for a distinction to be made between prisoners of crime and prisoners of duty, albeit here in this cloying mud no such distinction can be made, though they are not yet upon battle's field. Now, um, Prasak, of I Curse the Poet fame, stands up abruptly in his stirrups, claiming that about them there is a pillager of prose, a looter of language, and this scene just broke all of the fucking walls. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't this, think there's any chapter, wall left it, standing. It happens repeatedly in this chapter. Yeah. This is the most overt one, right? Where it just goes like yeah, there's yeah. a poet among us. But yeah, the rest of us are the rest of the I ones are the more. Kellanus one is also high up there. Kellanus grabbing an image. Yeah, but that's in his and... thoughts, you know? Like at the very least it's in his thoughts, oh, not I'm literally like about us as a guy. <laughs> See, Krasak and Dethana don't have a filter. What they're thinking is what we're listening to. Yeah, right? that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Now yeah. and then? Uh, Daphne disagrees. They absurdly imitate the noble cause, and Prasak concedes. Let's ignore the ghost for now, and ride on in silence, for he must prepare his rousing speech for the hushed soldiers. Foreshadowing. Prisoners. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Daphne replies that his speech will surely win their hearts, but Prasak only needs a sword to cheer. A score of crows, of undisclosed color, alas. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Uh, make their way overhead, and though the two officers exchange troubled glances, neither speaks. Thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was a scene. Yeah. Uh, it's both hysterical and extremely deep, and it's probably one of my favorite between the two. Yeah. Just the sheer density of this whole scene is delightful. Like from the pulling out the gristle from his mouth to changing conversation to, um, you know, yeah. you speak ill of Silka's ruins. Yes. No, as long as they're struggling, he keeps he keeps trying to dislodge it, right? Yeah. And once they're done with that conversation, he takes it out. Yeah. I don't know. Steve likes this uh, chewing gristle metaphor. Yeah. For I don't. Things, I don't right? know why, but yeah. I mean, I guess it's he does. a good one because we've all had experience with it, right? It's it's a good good metaphor. Mm-hmm. Are we moving to scene two? I guess we are, which you know is named uh, Bistecas Galaris because yeah. What? What? 
Let us yeah. this is the title. Yeah, this on. is the one where Kilaras has a five-page bath and just. Oh please, it's so good. Bear with this, me. This this exact scene is where I decided to hell with all this plot details and who cares what the first son is doing yeah, and I because there's I, I none. Can't be bothered. There's none. No, it's like why why this is so good. He's talking about so many interesting things and then what the hell? Why do I care about this animated searching for <laughs> Anderson? Who the hell cares? That, that's that's exactly how I felt when I was reading this section. So, I I changed from a plot reader to a I don't know what reader now. Yeah. Fall of light. Right. It's good. Yeah. Is that oh. okay? Please, we'll try to change the section title when we right, do right, the video. Yeah, we'll change the section title. Yeah, yeah. Of course we will. So, yeah. <laughs> riding to the hold, Captain Kilaris of Anamander's Houseblades is brooding. Of course he is. Is he? Surprise! He's surprise. Yeah. The unfettered wilderness about, only held in such a state as a royal mandate, because of course, has led the captain down a stream of thoughts he would not otherwise be able to indulge in. Kilaras does not descend into the civilization bad mantra that has been leveled at Steve, which is such an odd complaint, because that's not, but whatever, personal grumbles aside. Instead, <laughs> he realizes that nature put forth a challenge to the spirit. In its beauty, its wildness, nature challenged people, and an easy answer to such a challenge would be to flee, or destroy it, or wholly submit. Kilaras thinks that even before great cities and villages sprang up in Gorgalane, his people waged war against the wilds from the very moment they discovered the gift of fire. And that war is still ongoing, and the ties have nearly won. Nature is constantly yielding, as it can do no other. The monuments of civilization's victory are born of the corpses of nature. Stone, wood, and ore are all but spoils of this unending war. The Tithes are therefore constantly surrounded by death, and though they try to capture the beauty of life with dead materials, all they are able to construct is simulacra, imitations of nature's beauty, and even in this book, I can't seem to be able to escape Kalispa's influence, goddammit. Obviously yeah, like not. an exact quote in chapter 13 that talks exactly about this, but yeah, go figure. Chapter 13 of Forge of Darkness? Yep. Oh, yeah, it is 13, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Um, go on, go on. Somewhere when he's writing, yeah. he's writing and he sees a dead body and says, like, okay, well, don't judge me on how I fail in painting something alive with dead materials and stuff like that, you know, because of course he does. Anyway, uh, Kilaras ponders then that art is potentially not but the attempt of people everywhere to recreate those first moments, a quest to rediscover things already known, recreating the beauty of what had already been slain. It would be a shock, he remarks if an artist reached such a revelation. Art is a journey away from the first hearth fires and is intricately linked with murder, the first moment when one glimpsed the enemy at hand, the first taste of fear. If imagination was born of fear, then Kilaras at last understands this eternal war. People would be selective in what they choose to see, blissful optimism, the ascension of deities, symbols of the triumphant spirit, but something would always lurk beneath, whispering of faint unease. Something within them all, Kilaras realizes, is empty, and all his attempts to fill the emptiness miss the point. If they could return to a world before the walls and towers, if they could return to the silence and isolation, to a forested land with nothing but forest abound, and the gods and goddesses would walk among them and kneel with them in humility, if only they were capable of understanding the word humility. Alas, the tanks are not much interested in all this. Progress was demonic in its intensity, and nature had no place in the world the Tyst were creating which is a monologue. Um, 
Yeah. I did already mention Chapter 13, The Forge of Darkness, but like it's the other direction of that. Like this has this is kind of ground already trodden, but in a different way. It's all very interesting to me because I'm doing after hours and you know, seeing like the parallels. <laughs> Because a lot of people invoke Kadaspa in their internal thoughts, right? Sandara from last book, or, um, last chapter, or Sander from last chapter, um, Tarinas, a whole lot of people. And nobody seems to be able to reach the same level of not necessarily understanding, but like Kadaspa, the difference, I'm going on a complete tangent, is Kadaspa affirms what he believes. Kelaras, especially later in this chapter, goes on thinking, like, what do you mean? What does Mother Dark mean? What is the, what's she trying to show me? Like, that's what I was trying to say, this is what the point is. This is what I have to make of this. Which is more interesting. So, I'm not entirely sure why we're retreading, retreading similar ground here. But, I will withhold judgment. Because, when we do retread similar ground uh, later in this chapter, there is a point. Which we'll get to when we get there. Okay. That aside, uh, what are your thoughts on this monologue? Since, apparently, you like this more than I do. No, th- this whole thing... <clears throat> Okay, one thing, as you're reading here, about the first art which came out of some kind of fear. Mm-hmm. Do you think, like, Steve was talking about, like, this ancient Stone Age type of paintings, where it's the things which we fear is what people used to draw first, right? There is no drawings of, like, flowers or crops. It's, like, hunting and fire yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So that makes sense, like, what he's trying to say here. And, mm-hmm. you know, actually speaking, I couldn't, like, differentiate, uh, like, it is so smooth between what P and D were talking and what Kalara starts thinking. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost the same thing. Like I had to take a minute and think that, okay, this is not P and D. We are done with those two talking about how far civilization has moved from nature and start, you know, it's more or less the same thought. So, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it makes sense, even though Steve is accused of having the same philosophy thoughts with everyone. But yeah, as you say, it's not the case. <laughs> No, it's not. Yeah, but you know, it's it's similar, but they all have different things to take out of the same same philosophy, right? Not everyone comes mm-hmm. to the same conclusions. So right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. The it's it's the the remaining of Calaris's inner inner thoughts during the oh, bath. Yeah. There's that's a what lot I of really them. like. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm waiting for. Go on. So, as if to complete Calaris's metaphor, the high walls of Tulakeep rise from the horizon, and he angles to ride through the track to the hold. Even here, Mother Dark's influence is palpable. The area is unnaturally shaded, and the trees in their orchards, orchards? I don't actually know how to pronounce that. Orchard. Uh, orchard, do not I get nearly say. enough light. Yeah, I don't... You get the point. <laughs> that word. Uh, <laughs> do not get nearly enough light. Kilaras wonders if they one day might simply die out. Albeit, no such event has occurred yet, which is curious. Is Mother Dark's sorcery solely for the diced eyes? Is darkness merely an illusion, stealing away what others can rightly see? Is this a surrender of their will to the power of their goddess? Kelaris has heard that believers only selectively see what they wish. Is this Mother Dark making the metaphor real? What's the point? Great question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good but good on Kelaris, actually so, thinking this. It's so unnatural, this new magic. They're so unfamiliar with it. And she's so quiet about the whole thing. Yeah, it's natural that they're going to question yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good, yeah. yeah Go and on. just, like, contrasts to Emerald Lanier from Chapter 2, like, this is bullshit. None of this makes sense. I'm just going to do it my way, you know? <laughs> like, this is what Mother Dark wants at the end of the day, right? Her To ponder these thoughts, you know? <sighs> no matter. Who was that thinking about Karkanas is probably dark now? Was it, like, with Korea? 
was in korea Probably. too that darkness because it's so dark everyone is in in a pensive mood and everyone is sitting and yeah, yeah th- i think so yeah yeah that's what she thinks right see she is a mother dark stand in oh yeah She's we went over this last book right parallel to her yeah yeah no korea was this, this chapter the dog runner when she meets yeah but like we went over that motif a lot in forge darkness because yeah, had yeah. her dolls the small sandy yeah it, it makes sense so, it's a very it's very well written we're getting off track right continuing right that whole parallel thing is <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 yep so now his thoughts are interrupted as two figures step out of the hold to greet him ishtula and her husband ribgalas He greets them and awaits Lady's invitation, inquiring about the status of the servants. He knew this would be difficult given his station, but Hesh is making him work extra hard for it. As she should. He, she has yeah. every right. To be fair, yeah. He responds to Hesh's claims by claiming in turn that the wilderness has become a refuge. The forest invites solitude and she fires back. <laughs> He's shattering the refuge with word of the war beyond. Why? Were Hesh able... She would raise the wilderness an impregnable fortress and bathe in it the blood, bathe it of in the blood of unwelcome visitors. <laughs> Kilara has spent much longer pondering his thoughts on his way here and sees through yeah. Hish's hypocrisy, admittedly. Though he does agree with the overall sentiment, because that's exactly what he thought as well, Hish's presence is due to wholly unnatural means, that royal mandate we mentioned earlier, and she faces no daily struggle. She would arm the forest to protect her, rather than to protect itself, which is hardly noble. Rip concedes the point, and formally invites Kilaris within. Hish also concedes, and requests the reins to take his horse to the stables, albeit she makes her displeasure at Kilaris' presence known again. Grip is somewhat more amicable, albeit reserved, and tries to soothe Kilaris into more mundane tasks. A path will be drawn, the tales will be exchanged, necessary propriety will be observed, and Kilaris will go on his way. Prayed stays that way. Yeah. Alas, Galar is not here for all of that, and Grip knows it. The old man has tensed, awaiting information, and the captain gives it, which hardly seems to surprise Grip. He replies that guests have been few and far between, and a veiled warning to Galar's. Now, before we move yeah. on, I just want to mention that this is the first of many such differences between Grip, Grip and Hish and Galar's. Um, Galar mm-hmm. spent a lot of the early scene thinking on nature and civilized on you know how civilization has moved away from nature and like how the ties to wage war and nature and keep destroying it and though hish agrees with the overall sentiment they disagree on a few minute details and some tension is built up from that and now grip knows pretty much why kilaris is here he may i don't know he does he should know that uh, an amanda has fucked off um <laughs> so he can make a pretty reasonable guess as to why kilaris is here so He's not happy about it. Hish is very, very not happy about it. And the underlying tension being built up from their differences, rather than being expressed overtly, like, say, with the Leosan, like, like, Sintara and Hunral just sparring verbally with each other, in contrast this to this, both are excellently written. It's just they very well um, dis- de- demonstrate the differences in character between these two people. That aside, um, this is the first of many such instances. I will highlight a few more as we get to them. Do you have anything to add, Mora? No. Yeah, okay. Uh, just move on. This is like <laughs> yeah. the wrong point to stop. There's so much happening. Yeah, sorry. So, the latter, Kilaris, tries to move the conversation to more amiable territory, and he speaks of marriage. The life of the two weds seem to be uncelebrated, which an Amander would find unbecoming. Griff concurs, and he remarks that it's no wonder then that he left them an entire season. <laughs> Kilaris denies an Amander's involvement, which shocks grip but the captain does not elaborate without his presence 
Now, Probes a witty bastard, and he picks up on what Hilarus is laying down, so the conversation moves on. A bath will be promptly set up, and Pelk, a woman who's bored out of her mind, will be sent to attend to him. Now, Kilaris, in the name of courtesy, tries to deny all this, but Grip insists, and the captain eventually relents. He will accept the bath, but as for Hish's attentions, he prays Grip will shield him from the, br- from the brunt. Actually, the old man looks like he's going to, yeah. He's going to help Grip face her, right? I think it's the other way around, because like um, Grip tells him I would welcome a knight's nice attention, barring that from my wife, and you should not test Hish's temper. He's like, yeah, yeah, I have some really bad news, so I'm going to need you to like protect no, no, no. me from the, her, the brunt of her is, words. He asks, Grip asks, is it the bath or my wife's attention? And he says, the bath. He will see what comes of the bath. In the other matter, I shall bear your shield. So Kelaris is going to bear Grip's shield. Yeah, the bro code. Right, yeah. <laughs> They're standing up for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So the old man looks miserable, as one does, but he takes his leave and heads to the timber shed. Not long after, Pelk enters Kilaris' residence and begins to study the room, which doesn't look terribly tidy, and informs him that Grip is currently gathering the wood for the fire. Kilaris isn't terribly interested in small talk, and he cuts the chase. Pelk is a veteran Does of he? the wars, it shows. Yeah, I mean... That is the small talk. Isn't that the small talk? Oh, you fought in the war, I fought in the war. That's the small talk. Are they going to talk about dust, cobwebs, and... I mean... Airing the mattress, and... I think, I think they kind of want to... Right? I think Pelk, Hish, and Grip would want something like that. That's what Grip tells him. Pray the night passes such easy conversation. Okay. No? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Sure. All right. Um, but Pelk claims that those days are done. She was a houseblade to us company once, but she mostly trained the lady. Kelaris stumbles a little trying to compliment the woman. I felt that. <laughs> can, so I add, just, can, I, yeah. Yeah. can I add the audiobook makes Kelaris so hesitant and so like giggly nervous type of a uh, voice it's so it's so perfect like i know that this dialogue doesn't have any haha sound or anything but he adds laughter like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, that nervous chuckling and things like that. it's so good yeah um though the matter does not seem to be one in which pelk takes pride but is training so he shifts gears and asks about the bath and obliquely requests she join him and then less obliquely does he, he also asks about, yeah, he kind of does like, you know, and then like, would you need my attention? No, not necessarily, but I will welcome them. That's the more yeah, correct one later. He's not, That's later. Yeah. She asks him first. Uh, he also asks about the presence of other guests. A wing has apparently been sealed off, but Pelk denies the presence of others and possibly what is like the worst lie I've ever seen because <laughs> it just like she pauses like, no, no, it's just you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I believed you things. And noticing that he is being fucked with, Gilaris does not pursue this course further. Instead, he talks about the season it and season. how it affects people. <laughs> both Grip and more indirectly himself. Yeah. Belk asks about the bath one last time, and Gilaris would welcome her attentions, at which point she seems to be somewhat enlivened, claims it's the season, indeed, and leads to Gilaris <laughs> to his bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, do you have anything to add before we go on? No, 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 no. <laughs> Why are you stopping at all the good parts? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Right. No, yeah, but it's the season is is good. Yeah. Should we make that the quote for this one? Yeah, it's the season. Yeah. Would be good. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, stripping down to enter the bath, Kilaris muses on how easily the mind moves from comfort to unease and how difficult it is to go the other way around. 
Belk is uh, similarly disrobed, with a soldier's build unaffected by age, and with a scar right beneath her left breast, which is, well, where her heart would otherwise be, at least, judging by the angle oh, of the scar. Yeah. Belk seems to have dextrocardia, which is a fascinating metaphor for making oh, her heart you got difficult to find. Good. Do you know dextrocardia is when the heart is in the right side? Yeah. Do you know what, what is it called when all the organs are switched? Uh, like citizen versus the palace. Very good, very good. Thank very you. nice. Thank you, thank you. My students can't tell dextrocardia me. Dextrocardia is both Latin and Greek. Dextro is oh. Latin for right. Cardia is Greek for heart, which is just great. Mm-hmm. Thanks, English. Amazing. <laughs> uh, anyway, with no segue at all, as usual, yeah, Kellars yeah. begins to think back on tales of heroism he had heard, he, he'd hear as a child. I mean, just just imagine, yeah. you've been riding in the cold, in the snow for for days, and then you're in a warm bath. What do you think about? Obviously, you're going to start thinking about legends of heroes and Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, sure I, mean, I would. What else are you going to think about? Obviously. Especially when someone like Pelk is like <laughs> scrubbing your back. This this is the natural thought one, one should have, right? Yeah, of course. Now, he's echoing Kagamandra and Orphantal from earlier chapters. Or yeah. earlier books, I guess. In the case of Orphantal. In short... Kellaris concludes that such tales hide with flowery language and grand notions the ugly truth beneath. Feelings don't count for much in such tales. Indeed, feelings are often the enemy. The hero is implaceable, resolute, except, strong. Except one feeling. Yeah. There's only one uh, feeling cr- which is allowed. Satisfaction? Vengeance? Cold satisfaction. Cold, Cold satisfaction. satisfaction, yeah. Right. But also cruel and uncaring, with precious few exceptions. Now, okay. Kellaris also echoes a lot of larger darkness here, but that's part for the course because everyone does. <laughs> anyway, inside the hero, claims the captain, is the thing that will kill you all because he is the master of all his... And I have a very vague memory of reading something similar to that in Kirkanas. Like, I am the master of all I survey. It's probably Kadashpala again in chapter 20, and I just don't remember because I didn't check I the I can quote. watch you after us and find out very soon. So. I honestly don't remember if that's where it's from, but... It's something like that. I have a very vague memory of reading it. Anyway, it could be just this chapter and I just remembered. I don't know. Okay. Um, right. Kilaris, alas, was a veteran of the wars, as was Kagamandra and his thoughts are very similar. And not once in his many battles had he found such a hero of legend. Wars are fought amidst feelings, and the shocking revelation that the combatants have surrendered all that they held so dear, their love, their compassion, their respect. Such that a is, hero why could are you never... not quoting yeah? that? Why are you not quoting that? Why are you just summarize it. Has it come already? Please take me, Kilaris. Well, exactly. <laughs> oh, that, that bit about look what we are brought to this, that we should lose all that we hold dearest. Yeah, that's right now, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good like, quote. Uh, I liked yeah. it. I liked it. Yeah, I mean... They, Go on. The fact that it's a bath scene for five pages aside, it's a very good monologue. It's just very it's, odd to summarize. I'm just telling you, it's very natural for someone to take a bath and think these thoughts. It's, it's yeah. just because you've not done this Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <clears throat> but but you know. Yeah. Honestly, you do tell tell us a lot about your shower thoughts. Like some of your deadhouse gates theories and all are are probably shower thoughts, right? So see see look at you. Enlighten me. I don't remember what you're talking about. Hang on. Oh. I don't know. Some of one of one or two posts when you make, you usually say that I had a shower thought and this is what I was thinking and. You make right. some weird connection between some plots. Right. Yeah, yeah. You do that. So why are you pointing fingers I at mean, I'm not. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I'm just pointing <laughs> fingers at Steve for writing a fucking bath scene for five pages. He 
drawn from his own experience probably because see, you already do it <laughs> i'm sure he is no matter yeah yeah so such a hero could never be found here and indeed when kilaris thinks back on those tales he has no respect for such heroes or the singers of their tales misguided Why? unfeeling children being exalted by poets have they considered the tyranny of the hero's triumph when they sing about their deeds moreover have they considered how the audience would respond to such a tale does the blood still drip from their hand at story's end? And does it ever stop? And immediately talk about, when he starts talking about bloodied hands, only then he realizes that there is one pair of hands on him at yeah. this moment. Yeah, and that's when it stops. Yeah. So it, It's a huge segue. Yeah, it's yeah. just a segue ran wild. Right. Right, yeah. right. Yes, of course. No, I really like the thing where he says, all these heroes of his childhood, they're all insane. Which makes perfect sense. Do you know, just just when when you're sit, uh, still here, what hero do you think Steve is talking about? To me, it was, I think this was just straight and straight about Anamanda Rake, is what I thought. All this, yeah, he's not this point. hero, right? He's not a hero of this type of a legend. He's not this type of a hero. He he does start out that way, but the Anamanda we see, he told the hounds at least, is the opposite of this type of a hero. Mm-hmm. He's not caught up with vengeance. He's not caught up with I don't know. Like all his actions don't cause destruction for everyone else. Like you know, so I was only thinking about Anamanda Rake here. He's not doing any. Right. Yeah, he's not a hero of the of this type of a legend. Not this mm-hmm. shallow hero. If you have, I thought you'll have some other hero, and you're going to surprise me with. I didn't really have anyone in mind. Actually, no, no, no. I didn't have anyone in mind. Okay. Um, yeah, good point. Yeah, but at least in Karkanas, he is this type of a hero. He is. Yeah. This, cold satisfaction hero looking for vengeance and doesn't matter how many people have to die so that he gets mm-hmm. his vengeance. So, oh Maybe God. less Rake, so Rake in is such Gallant. a great character. Yeah. Come on. No. What ramparts? I, I don't have any ramparts to man. Yeah. I, yeah. I love Rick. That's it. Yeah. You're the entire fort and just the ramparts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I wanted to say is like not necessarily in Galan's Krakanas. Like in Fall of Light from what we've seen like the one scene we've seen him in this book he mellows out a bit but in the flashbacks of Kirkanas and like sundering adjacent events, he definitely filled that niche very much. Like he's outside a gate staring down Kilimandaros and like, well, you know, like everyone's fucking dying in there, but I have nothing better to do today, so I might as well let's go kill everybody. Um Is so, that yeah, how you in... see that? I thought it was him I will help you guard this gate, regardless of what comes from it. I thought he was being nice there. Really? Is, is that I mean, not how we you learned from the bone hunters that he he and his Andy went in, killed everything, and let the realm burn. Is it? See? See? This is why I don't want to read it too much and yeah, see, change like, my mind about it. Kalsa, Ampelas, and Eloth are supposed to have taken the throne of like Shadow to heal Emerlan with, but they were chained by an Amander so that no one could heal Emerlan in case someone sits on his throne. That's what they say, and that's what Catelion believes. Yes. Wait, wait. These three dragons tried to take Shadow just to keep it safe? Yeah. I don't, I don't keep believe it sa- well, To be fair, they are to heal more self-serving in the sense that like, they just basically outright say I better Nalint on the really throne than another reader or, or a dice. They're, they're lying, but they're upfront about the lying. They're shady creatures of shadow. So, yeah. can, we, can we come back to Pelk, please? Pelk? Yeah, oh, sure. Pelk. Did I say Kelp? Yeah, it's Pelk. Oh. <laughs> right. Uh, hang on. Yeah. So, Kilara snaps back to reality. 
and he comes to understand that here, now, are feelings. Here was the language that spoke out against tyranny in all its guises. Here he was, keeping this woman in his heart, uncomprehending perhaps that fact, and unaware of what she might do with it. In his mind, then, he dragged the nearest poet close, grabbed the bastard by the throat, and ordered him to sing of love like one who knows it, and sing, at last, a true tale of heroes. Few could claim a life without regrets, but those oh, regrets live so in good, the realm of adults and not <laughs> children. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm gonna get... Let me finish this. I know. As a matter of fact, that was the key difference between the two. Sing, then, of love and of a tale of true heroism. And yeah, this is... um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not sing to me. Yeah, sing. Uh, what rage goddess? What is that? What's the thing with Iliad? Uh, he doesn't ask anyone? to sing about love, right? He asks about to sing about rage. Yeah, sing goddess of uh, the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, which brought many yeah like things to the against. M- many people died. Much people, much death. Many battles. So. Yeah, I mean to be fair, the, the Iliad is about yeah. So uh, this... The rage of Achilles from start to finish. So yeah, it's not so much a tale of love. The Odyssey is somewhat a tale of love, kind of. Is it? Do you know, uh, it... Odyssey is about him going back to his wife, right? Yeah. Penelope. What's her name? Yeah. Okay. Penelope, and that's what yeah. Ulysses by James Joyce is about. It's about this guy yeah. not going back home because he knows she's cheating on him. Oh, that's That we're going to tackle one day, mm-hmm. Ulysses. It has 24 chapters because Odyssey also has 24 chapters. Or 24 sections or something. Mm-hmm. So it's 24 Absolutely. hours in a day is what that book, continue, uh, you know. I bought it, that physical book. It's it's this huge. It's like bigger than Fall, fall of Light. Yeah. There's a yeah, podcast of... Yeah. Okay, why am I talking about it? There's a podcast where this guy does one line per episode. He just talks about one line per episode. I think he's in the fourth chapter now. <laughs> when I look. Right. <laughs> right. So this line comes up twice. And I don't know why you didn't mention that. Man or woman, uh, what is it? No one lives a life without regrets, right? It comes up yeah, twice. Yeah. I like the line a lot. Uh, because start, regrets are... The ending of the... yeah. It's not something children have, right? Regrets. Mm-hmm. It is the forming of regrets which makes you an adult, which is what Arathan had to go through. Poor fellow. Now he regrets so many things mm-hmm. and he's grown up. Right, right. One day like you will see that regrets are nothing. Particular. Oh, the... The value lies in how you answer them. Yeah. Cotillion to, sorry, Cotillion to Absalar. Yeah. To, I think it was Carter, no? Why are these books so good and why are they so, no, I think he tells Absalar that. Yeah. Should we, should we look no, up? That's uh, the epilogue of House of Chains. Are you sure it's 100%. to Cutter, Not to? I'm positive. Oh my God. Okay. I don't want to challenge <laughs> you. <laughs> but I'm still going to look at the end of House of Chains when Carter uh, regrets. Oh, when they have Hawk and when he's carrying yeah. Absalar, is that when it, when the thing comes? Okay. No, 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 no. It's at the end. Like, uh, Catalina has told, like, Absalar that she ne- he needs her for one last job and she has taken on Carter's deeds. So she left him to protect him. And then Catalina goes on, like, she did basically give him the news. Yeah. She's gone, bro. But, you know, she, she loves you and she'll be back eventually. <clears throat> Do you regret? Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. Do you regret what you did? Cutter is asking. And he says, Regret? Yes, many, many regrets. One day, perhaps, you will see for yourself that regrets are as nothing. The value lies in how they are answered. My God. You're right. Shit. Someday I'm going to get something right. Yeah, okay. Would you move on? Unless you want to... Galan's long overdue bitching about those who last for blood. We're dealing with a few technical issues right now. Please forgive me. Uh, So, scene three, which uh, Maura was inquiring about. I have named um, 
beloved Anamander is not trust Silgas. Spoilers. I mean. <laughs> so, dinner is being served at Tula Hold. Before you begin, may I Our say? Great Lady Hish remains particularly reserved. No word has come from the Citadel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I can wait. Okay, see. Anytime you give Steve few people and either a campfire or a dinner table that he just runs with it right i've not seen a, i've not let a single boring dinner scene or a single boring campfire mm-hmm. scene no i don't know he just comes into his element whenever these things this setting exactly is his it's, it's a good one yeah please continue continue mm-hmm. right so no word has come from the citadel as silgas rather than rally the nobles houseplate has instead elected chose uh, as elected to rearm the Hust Legion, but has not joined them. As it stands, Galar Barris, with whom Galaris is acquainted, is leading the Hust in Doris's absence. We know all this. Hish probably could well guess. There's something going on beneath the surface. Indeed, Hish is rather unimpressed at the news. Silgas would recruit prisoners to arm the Legion? What loyalty would they have? To Mother Dark or to the people who rightly imprisoned them? No, this act will bring about a new front to such a sordid war. Galaris' only response is Prazak and Dathanar have been dispatched to the Hust, which enrages his grip, for Selkaz had no right to command the Amanda's houseplates. Hish is somewhat more skeptical, for she had been seen Prazak and Dathanar in action. If ever legends heroes walked among them, surely it would be them, which, by the way, goes completely contrary to Galaris' assessment of the very same, and moreover, the two remind Hish of the strong undercurrent of Hedor's Unreal, strong as iron, but if you listen, you can hear that prattle. <laughs> Kilaros confesses to have sent them from Karkanas for himself, per Silgas' ruin, ruins order, since Anamander is gone, and his shadow is white, not black, which is a curious distinction to make. I mean, he's just saying um, it's Silgas who's in command. Yeah. Draconis is keeping himself busy. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. Just, it's just the same thing, yeah. So, <laughs> Draconis is keeping himself busy within the Chamber of Night, which his finds revolting. The man is desperately needed, and it's about time Kilaris banged against the door of the chamber, and if need be, physically pulled the man out. Now, Kilaris is aware of Draconis' battlefield prowess, which Grip filled us on. Uh, apparently, Draconis snapped the neck of a Jellic clan leader like a twig, but beyond that, he can see no use for him, and certainly not to the extent that he has professes. Simply put, no noble-born would rally about Draconis. Hishtula is incredibly unimpressed by the prattling of their ability, for base envy would cost them their lives, and even though she would stand with Draconis in a heartbeat, she is aware that functionally nobody else would. Indeed, Kilaris agrees. They are pissed at him for they cannot possess what Draconis does, not have the gall to accuse Mother Dark herself, and I'm not going to say this, and in conjunction with the battle against the Mortar Swords, the nobles would never rally about him again. If they ever did. I guess they did once with the Jalak, but not again. Yeah. Hish pushes the matter away and mentions Shreena Sankara's word from Nerid Sor, professing Ursander's innocence. She thinks that makes no sense, and it probably isn't, and therefore would give Shreena no assurances about a potential future conflict. Hish concludes that Ursander is a broken and bowed man, which isn't necessarily off base. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Go on. Yeah. So, Kilaris pointedly observes that her holding is not as isolated as she had hoped. No <laughs> shit. And she concurs. Albeit, she replies that she has ordered Ransop to stay where he is, and thereby guard Sukul and her keep. Lastly, she inquires about Orphantal, and Kilaris replies that though it's regrettable that Silkas is his lone guardian, 
Mother Dark people enough with Silka Slander, he still misses his dearly. Grip understands that the kid would be traumatized by his acts, and though Kelaras tries to amend this, he too has to concur. Yeah. Yes, yes. Grip changes subject and orders Belk to sit with them, and Hish invites her to share her thoughts. As a veteran, she well recalls Ursander's habit of seeking the high ground to survey the battlefield, but that's no longer possible when the battlefield is all of Kurulgulain. Ursander is not the problem here, though, alas, that will be Silcast, seriously, enough, <laughs> and by extension, Kilaris. Now, the captain concurs with me, uh, and replies that Silcast well understands his extremity. He has also abandoned. He is also abandoned by both his brothers, and he must weather the storm of a civil war and an envious nobility alone. If anyone is at fault here, it's an Amander. Now Grip gets pissed at that accusation and replies that an Amander would be at the Citadel if not for Anderist. Hish gets pissed at that accusation and rightly replies that he is judging a grieving man too harshly. To which Grip counters that an Amander very well could be in grief himself. Yeah. Now Kilaris, at the behest of Pelk, goes on. Silgas pleads for an Amander's return as he wants little more than to stand aside, which is probably not what Silkas actually said, but Kilaris's respect for Silkas is minimal, so, you know. He also understands that an Amander won't easily be swayed. Accordingly, Grip resolves to set out tomorrow to find him. Yeah, here. what happened? Now, Hish explodes at this. An Amander promised him his freedom, and she begs Grip to deny Kilaris, which she immediately amends, good call yeah. Hish, deny Silkas. He has no right to such a demand. Grip responds that he's doing this for an Amander, which Hish counters by saying that an Amander will be very pissed at him if he breaks his word, for only his word counts for him. Now, Grip knows he's functionally the only person capable of bringing him back, and therefore it must be him. To make a long story short, Hish claims that she knows these men, but Grip replies that she does not know them well enough, and she drops a bomb for us, an Amander that does not trust Silgas. He left to find Anderist, because the third brother is a counterbalance to the two of them. Grip resolves to bring an Amander here, and when Kilaris protests, asking that he be brought to the Citadel, the two Weds drop a second bomb for us. Andrist is with them in the locked-off wing of the Lakeep. Yeah. Ooh, shit. <laughs> Ooh, shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... As I said, the yeah. dinner table and people sitting around and talking is where Steve's shines. So, one thing... Um, Hish tries to stop him three times. He freed us and, you know, she has three or four different counters, right, to, to each of his arguments. And the audiobook, we do know how well he does that. He goes more and more <laughs> desperate, more and more desperate. And then at last when he says, I have a truth which, you know, there is one truth which, you know, you don't know, you don't understand. And that's when Hish completely breaks out. He does his, such a good job of acting. This is when I almost cried at this part. When she says, you have... Then why did he ever leave and all that? It's very mm -hmm. good. It's very well done. Just one more thing I noticed. Because we're talking about Orphantel and Sukul Ankadu. Sukul is still a very nice lady here. Very nice young girl here. It's it's probably just because the framing, right? Because Galan is writing about young children. Men and door and... Mm -hmm. These people have not yet you know, grown into what they are going to become later. Unle unlike Envy and Spite, who were just born that way. But whereas Sukul and Sheltata and Manandor are still very young children. So Galan probably still has some allowance for their innocence. We've not seen Manandor, by the way. We have not yet, but I'm just saying that I don't know if you're going to see. We're only seeing these two at least. But I'm just saying that there is a lot of lenience with the way these girls are written compared to the, how they're portrayed in Book of the Fallen. Probably because it's still very young. So, 
Mm-hmm. Sorry. You can, did you finish this section? I think there's one more bit. That's one thing. The excuse given in the Book of the Fallen, uh, no, not quite. There's a bit more. Yeah, yeah, there is a bit, yeah. Um, the excuse given in the Book of the Fallen is like they have dragon blood in them, so they yeah. get driven crazy and whatnot. It's, they, we'll see. Yeah. They drank the blood, right? Anyway, so what I wanted to bring up is that the iteration of things we have already mostly gone over with a slow build-up to these two bombshells is why this chapter is really good for all Mandarin. Kilar's thoughts on nature and heroes, as well as Kilar's purpose, all build up to contrasting with Hish and Grip, lending to a building tension centered on their disagreements. This chapter is very difficult to accurately summarize, but it's also really fucking well written. <laughs> Just... yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay, I have a question. In any case, Grip outright tells Kilaris that Anderist yeah. yeah, has yeah. locked himself in this wing with the servants. Did they have like drone delivery of groceries or what? What are they eating? Mm-hmm. How long can they keep eating? A whole winter season, they don't have to go step outside for food or firewood. How are these guys locked up in a wing? Just exaggeration, right? It's just Galan saying they're locked in. But it just means that he's sitting in his room and moping and not making conversation maybe. I'm it's harsh to say moping. I mean, he's grieving. Probably. I mean, I don't think he's literally permanently 24-7 yeah. locked in. Yeah. Go on, go on. Yeah. Right. So, in any case, uh, Grip outright tells Kilaris that Anderis is not for him. He would refuse to see him, for he is here because Hish was the only person standing with him in his hour of greatest need. Oh, God. One sec. Be back. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Again. Anyway. Um, so, when he inevitably finds Anamander... He will bring him here first. Kilaris concedes with a dumbfounded expression. Belk pulls him out of it, then informs him that Grip is leaving tomorrow. Kilaris gazes one last time upon Hish's face and realizes the true extent of the discord he brings. In his closing thoughts, he remarks that Prazak and Dahanar are not alone in grieving the discord he brings. He did not choose this task. It found him. Oh. Okay. Yeah, please. Be back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I <laughs> concludes scene three. And scene four... I went and named. I remember every poor bastard I went and killed because I like rebel. And yeah, so you like without further ado, a murder has occurred in the Hast camp. Rebel Warth and Listar are on the case, none too pleased with another such occurrence. Someone seems to be killing men who killed women. More to the point, they don't seem to leave any tracks, despite the killed men being dumped quite a distance from where the murders actually took place. A woman steps up and informs the two men with Lister gone to investigate for tracks that this murdered fellow went by the name of Guineal from White Crag Pit, which is quite far away from where they are. Warth is apprehensive of the whole situation. He has earned no loyalty from anybody at any moment, his com- and at any moment his, collab- his command could collapse. It's all of a seize, God. Uh, but he does what he must. Lister returns, no tracks as usual, and his use of Sir makes Warth cringe. Rebel, Warth's new corporal, commands the people gathered to take the body to the fires and strong arms this woman, who, whose name is Rance, to stay with them. She too is apprehensive of the whole situation, but Rebel's temper is more than reason enough to stay her. We learn that Rance apparently drowned her own baby with no memory of the event, but everyone says she did it, so she must have, and Warth gives her a hard stare, which his inner monologue betrays as little more than games of disguise. His greatest secret is known to all, and yet still he torments himself with the knowledge of his cowardice. He even laments the fact that a murderer going loose in the camp isn't enough to distract them. Rebel jests with Rance, speaking up is dangerous, and Warth informs her that she is to be the new squad leader. 
she immediately declines, inadvertently passing the first test. <laughs> Old Dreadbull can hear her say no 20 times, her skull too. <laughs> Rance continues, they won't follow her, but then again, Wertha means they won't follow anyone. Rance asks the lieutenant flatly if he ran, and he calmly replies that he did, like an ass-poked hair, which is a metaphor. To his surprise, <laughs> Rance does not seem to have any contempt for him. Uh, she instead says that she will be right next to him next time. Worth can sometimes hear the muttering of a hushed sword, like a child trapped in the jaws of a wolf, and thinks that such screaming would awaken painful memories within Rance. Worth believes that she must live with the fear of one day remembering. Rance replies that the killer they're looking for could be a woman, and Horeth in Worley concurs, and Rebel formally informs her that she has joined the investigation. She doesn't want the killer caught, but then again, neither do they. Galar just needs this matter settled. Yeah. Rance replies that the matter will settle when all the woman killers are dead, but such a thing is not feasible, could be a few hundred or more. Horeth also notes that Rance's hard hands are red, as if recently scalded, and her face seems guarded. Now, um... The woman then tells Warith to simply tell Galar how things are. The men who kill women are cowards, with minds filled with dark knots, who would lose their mind at the first fit of bloodlust and welcome it. Such men as the murdered are worthless in an army, for they will run and make trouble with the woman. She concludes, better to see them all dead. So... Oh dear. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. No, she adds a sir at the end. The star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, the sir at the end, yeah. Lestar was standing a few paces behind them, silent, and Worth knows Rance knew of his crime. Of course she knew. That's all they talk about. As if it'll taste any better if you chew on it enough. Rebel steps up and tells Rance that not all of them are cowards, and some killings just happen in a red haze. And that's how forgetting and not remembering becomes the worst part of a murder. But not for Rebel. Rebel can remember every poor bastard he killed. The ones he meant to, the ones he didn't. All their names blend together in the end with nobody the wiser. What Rebel can't remember is the why. He can't remember a single reason. Morris tries to see a point beneath Rebel's words, but Rance simply nods along. The corporal takes Lister away to search Guineal's tent, leaving Warith alone with the woman. He orders her to come along, and she voices no objection. She claims that she had forgotten about Lister, and Warith replies that Rebel figured she was looking the wound, and he didn't like it. Moreover, Lister wants nothing more than to die. He looks at the bodies of the murdered and wishes that that could have been him. Warneth isn't particularly optimistic about the outlook of the Hus Legion. Any second now, it will all fall apart. Too many deserters, too few Legion soldiers to make a perimeter. Rance protests, but Warneth points out that she wasn't anywhere near her camp during the murders. She replies that nobody back at the camp would accept her, and Warneth tells her to find someone to make her rebel. A woman named Velkatal, who abandoned her six children, yikes, after informing her that whatever fate befalls Rance will, before her, will befall her as well. That's how the Hust makes squad leaders. Alas, Rebel's reasoning for keeping Warth alive is known only to him, since he kept him alive long before the Hust soldiers came to the mines. Rance asks if Warth has killed a woman before he declines, merely replying, there's all kinds of cowards out there. Is, it, is he a coward because he didn't kill a woman yet? Or? No, I, I think it's more like, <laughs> you know... Uh, all all it's women, all men who kill women, yeah, yeah, all men who kill yeah. women are cowards. When all cowards kill women, I think is what's getting at. No, you could you could read it either way if you don't know who is what. It. Oh yeah, I mean probably. Yeah. Okay, then scene five, which is what amazing. are you naming this? Shallow woman. You are going to name this? I'm not going to name shallow, shallow woman. woman. No, no, no. Oh, no. what, what uh, are you naming it? it? I can but try. 
because oh yeah yeah good one yeah my so yeah muggling boys this is a long one uh right no oh dear okay um (laughs) firehand is a woman impossibly fleeing her future in her waking moments, she could see Hakamantratulas riding for her without malice, but simply the promise of fate. In her sleep, she sees Spinoff a man she is fated never to have, armored against all her charms, and that galls. She would wake and walk through the camp tents, taking in the routine, the mechanical certainty of an encamped army, and she looks to the east, awaiting the arrival of a broken cog, seeking a new routine of husband and wife. Galar had summoned her to a staff meeting. But she couldn't see a point to that. She needed to ride back to her company regardless, back to Khaled and Spinnock. Would Agamander be awaiting her there? Or would he ride towards her? And if so, what right should she take to avoid him on the way back? Because it seems that Tice are allergic to talking things through, but nothing new under the sun. Walking through the camp, Farrah thinks back to the catalytic event for the disarmament, Hunral's poisoning. Restitution of the Legion was a righteous goal, but she was unconvinced if it was worthy of fighting a civil war over. Then again, Ral sought to prevent the civil war from starting in the first place, but in that he failed. As Farrah reaches the command tents, she remarks that this army is killing itself. She can't quite comprehend what's keeping it together. Or rather, she doesn't want to comprehend what's keeping it together. She chalks it up to the endless chattering of the host armor and weapons, whispering their desires to each of these soldiers, which I think is terribly unfair. I'm gonna be honest, I don't think Why? this is the case. Because it removes all sorts of agency have... from these people. Like... Are they only no. doing what they what is right because like the weapons are whispering to them? No, but if you can find somewhere to divert your excuse, why wouldn't you grab it? If you can blame the weapons, why wouldn't you blame the weapons? Isn't this? I mean, I'm sure Faro so would. Typical of like, diced thinking. Yeah, it is. It is. Me. That's I why it's unfair. It. The weapon made <laughs> me do it. Yeah. Yeah. At last, she enters the command tent and finds the commanding officers of the Hus Legion. Quartermaster Selton Regandas, who we, I think we mentioned the first time he appeared, if he wouldn't appear again. Yeah. I know. Uh, Yeah, we did see that. Captain Castigan and Commander Galar Barris, each of them with their own woes. Castigan is the last original captain of the Legion, spared during the night of the poisoning by his weak bladder, and spends most of his day cursing his weakness, and more than anything, those in Karkanas who seek to resurrect the Legion. A few moments later, a handful of prisoners from the prison, a handful of officers from the prisoners enter. Yeah. Uh, Smith named Curl, who apparently murdered his partner for no foreseeable reason. A woman named Errol, who fed her husband to his family as supper. A woman that even rebel fears, apparently. The fire is more impressed by Worth, whom she somewhat understands, albeit she hardly trusts him. The rest of his officers are comprised by two partners in crime and love who broke into the state in Garkanas and were charged with the murder of the home's denizens, despite the fact that functionally everyone knows they didn't do it, because the Keep's Lord did, but it's his word versus the word of too many thieves, in Coral Galane. Yeah. Warth arrives not long I mean, after with Rance, for whom fire... Yeah. Do you really believe them? What Do you really believe these two stories? That they've walked yeah. in on a rape and murder going on, and you do believe them? Yeah. I think they made up that story because this is what they ended up doing. No? It, it is too much of a coincidence. They walk in to, for plane robbery just on the night when this guy decides to murder his own family. Yeah. How unlikely is that? No, I mean, I, I don't this is Galan's poetic license now. Yeah, but it's just so unlikely for such a thing to happen. 
I mean, I'm not going to say it isn't unlikely, but it's also unlikely that 3,000 men and women die in a single night by poison. It, all I'm saying is, like, this is, I think, deliberate from Steve to juxtapose the purported crimes of these characters with their characters, like, their personalities, really. Uh, you know, like, Warren is a coward, that, yes, that but he's sense. also the first person to stand in defense of the woman. Um, Lister That's... apparently kills his wife, but he's the first person to assist a woman. Rebel has a temper, and he's like ready to drop a hat at any moment, and then drop a hat himself. But he has seemingly a heart of gold and is an honorable individual. These two apparently killed a whole bunch of people, but they're gay. So why would they sexually assault? I th- you get the idea. I mean, no, it it says something like their sheer popularity and their very sharp of mind yeah. and precision yeah. of their wit and all that. So what you're saying makes sense. Yeah, there is a lot of juxtaposition bef- between their crimes and their personalities. And of course, so fine. none yeah, of that. I'll take, yeah, I'll, yeah. yeah, And of course, none of that is chalked I, up to their characters by the dice. It's the swords, it's the weapons, it's the armor. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, Warth arrives not long after with Rance, for whom Farrer can at least muster some sympathy. Galar cuts the chase, and he announces that the Hust will begin distribution of their weapons and armor, causing Gathagan a joke. The blades, he claims, are eager for blood. <laughs> now, Galar dismisses this. The blades respond to pressure and temperature and sing accordingly, which, for the record, would make for a very shitty weapon if its resonance frequency is so audible. One strike from another blade and the arm won't shatter. They're not alive. But Gathagan is unimpressed, claiming that his sword visits him in his dreams. Jesus Christ. And begs him to be his hand of vengeance, <laughs> to which Galar does not respond, instead ordering Warith to report. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so about the resonance frequency thing, imagine like someone strikes yeah. his chest plate and just goes <laughs> like I'm do not wanna be in that thing because that's like a recipe for blunt force trauma. Okay, anyway. so this the word tuning for Moving on. This, mm-hmm. Isn't that a bit of uh, I don't know, isn't it too modern of a word? Tuning folk. Do you think some some people yeah, like bit, yeah. the Tice society would have had something like that? Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. But then, if they had music instruments, mm. they would have. I mean, had if a they understand folk. differences in, like, yeah, if they, so if they understand that vibrations are caused by differences in temperature, which probably isn't actually the case, but whatever, and they that what they hear is pressure, they probably no. wouldn't know what a tuning fork is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's probably the phrase which is which stands out to me. But yeah, go on. I mean, a lot of this sounds a bit like pseudoscience and slash or like fantasy augmented science fiction things because that's not how resonance works. But See, there is magic. <laughs> there is magic. Will you just yeah, stop I mean, it? I, yeah. I thought I'll just stay quiet this time, but please, there is pressure and tension and magic. Are you happy? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Warith doesn't have anything to mention beyond the usual. Another murder. Another body move without a trace. Another mystery. But he has brought along Grants, who has the makings of an officer. Galar asks her if he should distribute the house weapons, and Grants is very reticent. She doesn't seem thrilled with the idea. Now, Castigan is very much not thrilled with the idea, but then are in Callaghan, the two thieves earlier. And that Chaos has already taken over the camp, and they're scant a little worse than arming the troops and giving them something to do. Now, Galar agrees, and moreover claims that Ursander is going to march on them any minute now, to which Farah replies that that would be foolish due to the wardens being camped nearby. 
and Gath again jumps in and informs her that the Wardens are no more, which Galar regrettably confirms. The Gavin's a hard bastard living in hard times, and in his view, there's hardly time for sentiment. Bollocks. This effort has failed. Send a rider to Silcas, tell him the Hus Legion is no more, and exhort him to sue for peace. Now, of all those things, uh, Farrah's first thoughts are about her commander first, and her cousin second. Moreover, Fenara has written to the Sheikh. Are they informed of all of this? Oh, yeah. No, I'm hmm. not going to mention the shallow woman thing. No, I'm, I'm not going to defile, defile fire like that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you not, very much. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So, Warith provides her a stool, and she sinks down, while Galar and Castigan are arguing. The mission is now imperative. The Legion has two weeks to be ready for marching, and there's no choice left. Castigan fires back. The only choice left is surrender. Galar pointedly ignores him, and orders Warith to gather his officers, sergeants, and corporals, take them to the training ground, and see them armed. Warith is to be armed with his old blade, which he rails against, but Galar denies him. Selton is also dispatched with Warith to see to it that the wagons remain guarded, and if all goes well, the regulars will be armed in two days' time. He dismisses everyone to speak with fire. Castigan mutters something about honor, and Galar angrily dismisses him, which descends into an argument. Castigan does not fight in honor's name, but in guilt, and it will be far more suiting to allow it to swallow it down whole. At least that would keep him on his feet. Turns out, Castigan was a legionnaire in Ur Sanders' legion, and Galar all but invites him to desert and sell the intelligence he has gathered to the commander. The captain leaves, disgruntled, leaving Farrer and, Gal- and Galar alone. Ooh, dear. Yeah. 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 Poor Galar Baris. Young, young Galar Baris. Yeah. There's more, and uh, it only gets worse from here for the poor guy. So, uh, the commander turns to Farrer and tells her that what Rent did was unforgivable. But the warden snorts. It's not like he needs forgiveness where he is. As it stands, Selkaz has full command of all the forces in Corral Galane, save for the hostage of the noble houses. But when Anamander returns, it will be Selkaz taking Galar's place. Torres might, or might not, be returning to lead the host. So, for the time being, with Galar's ship for officers, he is appointing Ferrer Hand as captain in the host legion. Khaled has lost his command as the wardens are no more, and the few survivors are fleeing to the host camps. Farrer pleads with Galar to send a rider to Yedra Monastery and appoint Finara instead, but that will take time. Until then, Farrer will be the commanding officer. Her protestations seem to sting Galar. Once upon a time, the Hus Legion was the name spoken of with pride. They held against the Forlican, they saved Karkanas, and they saved Kurlgalain. Farrer replies that she is not a soldier, and Galar laughs. Has he not heard that enough times already? Her last question, where will you find glory in such men and women? Shut down by the commander's response. I can but try. I know. Applause. Yeah. Applause to Galar for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's not that much deep, like deep thoughts to talk about here, but no. Beyond what we already talked about about the the prisoners being given, like you know, oh no, it's not you guys actually having a spine. It's clearly the swords and the armor that's influencing you. <laughs> Obviously, duh. Um, yeah, it's telling them in their dreams to go fight, to go kill people. So. Yeah, God's spell. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> I'll try this up. So, last scene is uh, with her boys, Brazak and Dahanar. And um, I have Titan? titled it That Stretched the Breath. They did not. Now, having aroused yeah. themselves <laughs> for a proper speech, um, 
the captains of Anamander's Hotblades are disappointed to note that their audience is neither downtrodden nor particularly peasantry. No matter, for Prasak shall deliver his stirring speech no less. A speech to churn emotions, to swirl thoughts, but he ought to save the last handful of spice for the final turn. Athena remarks that these individuals won't simply be stirred by a slap, for they have collected their loot, axes, cudgels, and spears, in the dock, leading him and Prazak to the inevitable conclusion that they deserted the last legion, for forest bandits would not be quite so zealous with their brush cutters. Uh, three men step up to greet the house blades, and Prazak begins to deliver his stirring speech. They understand these three men are deserters of the Hust, but it's quite fortunate for them that they happened upon the two captains, for they will be lenient, and rather than try and force them upon them something so mentally challenging as a forced march, they will simply scare them along like sheep. Or goats, depending on your perspective, due to the ill-disguised belligerence they're displaying. One of the men asks them if they sweat perfume, and Prazek, after explaining to Dathana the intricacies of goatly humor, replies that sweat belongs to the unwashed multitudes, and why, if he would rather smell perfume, he would only have to bend back to his own ass. Dathana chastises Prazek for bending <laughs> low to crass regard, but Prazek replies that he must speak the man's language in order to be understood. Their spokesman cuts them off and informs them that they are presently being robbed, how kind, and indeed, he manages to string a few coherent sentences to the point of impressing the two house blades. Dathana remarks that his thoughts were stretched unto breaking. Uh, they resolve to dispense with leniency, for surely the host will forgive them their display of discipline here. A man from the crowd advises against attacking the house blades because they's fucking hammered in fact. Which prompts Dathana to commend the man for his wise words, but before he can elaborate, the two house blades get charged. No matter, for they rather quickly dispense with the deserters in like two paragraphs and go back to conversation. Wise words are rarely heeded. Few enough now to see them march in proper cadence, that of the defeated and the cowed, battered and the bruised. And the two resolve to round up the stragglers and make them proper. And the shuffle. After and the shuffle, yeah. After bantering a little more about the dead men, Biskin kissed Prazak's horse's forehoof, another lost a scalp, and yet another flanked his head one way and his body another by means of that and a sword. And they conclude that indeed these men are sheep and not goats. It's high time they dogged them, for now they shall surely heed their bite. Together, the two men, along with the deserters, march back to the camp of the Hus Legion. More like shuffle, whatever. Overhead, crows had already gathered, wheeling and crying out their impatience. And that was that. What color crows? Everybody clapped. White or black? Um, <laughs> we don't know. Again. Yeah. You know? Okay, so you know what this ti- this uh, section should have been titled? Sheepdog. Sheepdog would have been a good title. I think it's one episode in Bluey, Sheepdog. Right. So... They are herders, um, like the Wiccan cattle dogs. Yeah, it's like they're going to dog them back, right? Because they're, yeah. they've turned out to be sheep after they're all. Sheep, yeah. They're not goats. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're yeah. so good, these two. I don't know why I was so hesitant to read them during my first read. I didn't like them so much. But now it's it's so so it's it's exactly like Shakespeare, you know? You read the first mm-hmm. time and you think, what what is all this thing happening? And why are they talking like this? And, and then you start to appreciate it, right? Okay, so they do talk about what this yeah yeah no no yeah go on but they talk about churning emotions and they save a last handful of spice 
which is what this section is right for this chapter this is the last handful of spice because it's a quick mm-hmm. tiny battle yeah mm-hmm. yeah go on shakespeare so since so we talked about shakespeare uh there is a scene in titus andronicus where a character goes and i should you not villain i have done thy mother and like <laughs> give me something like that in this book like give me prasak and dahan are going up to raw and just telling my fuck it your mom just uh, yeah so i'll have to share okay. thank thank you for sharing yeah uh, you're most welcome <laughs> you know this is not bad we're not even like 90 minutes yet yeah right it's a good why remarkably quickly <laughs> No, it's yeah. the, it was that Warith, the murder and Farrell Hen sections, which was just purely what's happening and what's happening. Yeah, the yeah. other sections needed some, you know, some talk. Mm-hmm. Right. So, was Do it you fun? have anything more to add to the uh, the ending spice there? The last handful of spice? No, I just said that, yeah, it was yeah. very enjoyable. So again, mm-hmm. there is crows. Mm-hmm. How does Steve do and, this? Yeah. Does he like finish writing a chapter and then go and add these things? let me add one sentence at the front and then let me repeat the sentence at the end of the chapter does he do like that i don't know <laughs> so from what little i've read i don't i think what he ends up doing is he very rarely like does this where he just he starts a chapter and he's going to finish the chapter nothing in between yeah. he starts here he goes through it then everything and it goes to the end so i think he just starts with this crow motif and suddenly like okay how would i bring this back to the crow motif and what do the crow symbolize So, you know, um more than that, there is the symbolism of, you know, the uh the deserters I, of the Hast Legion marching back broken and cowed and beaten and like crows be circling Rasak and Dathanar. I guess they're like they liken them to carrion. Yeah. Um what else is there? Uh you were saying something about hands, scalded hands or something? That's for later. Well, oh, let's sure. not talk about that now. Okay, sure. <laughs> Okay. So I bring this up for the rereaders who right? actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I'm a rereader, but I don't know what. We, we'll talk about this later in private. I can't elaborate now because spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh okay, we are not even halfway through this book. We are at 30%. Yeah. And yeah. we've been going for like 2 months now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, no regrets. Yeah. Right? So, at present pace, this will take us up to like what, December? I think so. something there about so yeah but yeah by the time you're seeing this is probably like early october so hi you said okay <laughs> something like that <laughs> yeah but see please i i would like tell people to take a break in between and like yeah. read cradle because read cradle, it, it refreshes me a lot something else. seriously yeah anything anything short and fast and non non karkanas even one of the novelists even that would do because these are heavy you do need a break right I feel so much better. I'm I'm not someone to just take a break and come back to a book, but it feels good with four of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I mean, there is a measure of dread between like reading Cradle and then trying to summarize this, but <laughs> I don't know, like the I did the summary in like 2 days and it flew yeah. by compared to the chapter 7 summary from like 3 or 4 day, well, less than that, but it felt like that and it was very difficult. So yeah, a break is very much recommended because it helps to get that mental reset of you know i'm not looking too deep but when i do look deep there is something there in other books like yeah. cradle there is maybe potentially something there but you don't really care because it's more fun if you don't look and just let yourself be immersed <laughs> so you know yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I did ask our friend about something in Cradle. I said, is this what is happening? And then he said, it's not that deep. Just keep reading. <laughs> All right. Anything Anything to note for Chapter 9 next week? Um, I don't believe so. Rafa? I don't think just these two... Oh yeah, just Rafa. I don't think these two chapters necessarily interlink, I recall. Mm-hmm. There is a... But see, well, mm, we yeah. were promised in Chapter 5 that the tone is going to change. Mm-hmm. And we are back to the old tone now, right? There are no wavered yeah. Azathanai. There is no death against war. War against oh. death. Well, well, you got one chapter of that. Come on, you can't complain too much. I mean, we got two chapters and then we are back to the same old tie stuff. Yeah, so. but, you know, compared to like battle in chapter one, gloom and dread in chapter two, um, and then, you know, Cliff and Narad. Yeah, it, it's a bit I different. don't remember each chapter like that. Yeah, I feel like an eternity ago. Yeah, it was months ago. So, shall we wind up? Yeah. Sharp so. one minute, 30 seconds. 30 minutes. One hour, 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Right. So, yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Good night.